Alright, so as we're thinking about this topic of the Quran, so we'll find out what it is. If you're not familiar with what the Quran is, you, you'll have a good idea by the end of the class, I hope. Um, just out of curiosity, so to satisfy my own curiosity, has ever, anybody in the class ever tried reading any portions of it? So, I have ancient literature. Yeah, wow. Okay. Yeah, so when you tried reading it, what was your impression, or how did you, do you remember? It's been 40 years. Oh. <laughs> we won't put you on the spot then. <laughs> so, but you have, all right, so we at least had some exposure. Anyone else who, uh, Ibrahim, uh, you obviously have had some exposure. Uh, and you, so what was your, you know, when you tr- when you read it, did you read it a lot? Did you read a little? We're supposed to read in Arabic, and I don't know how to read Arabic. Yeah. <laughs> Translation. Yeah. And when I used to read a lot of it, it kind of it was written pretty poorly. Yeah. Like, with, like the literature aspect of it is written like a teenager wrote it. Yeah. Do you remember what translation you read? Who, who wrote it? I don't, I don't remember. Okay. There's a couple of good ones. There's one that's uh, like the standard, a standard translation that was written by um, a British guy, actually, who did the English translation. He was an Indian Muslim. Uh, and he was British. Um, Ali, you, Abdullah Yusuf Ali is, he's the, oh. yeah, so he's the one who does this, it's, it's like the standard English translation of the Arabic, uh, Quran. Um, his is kind of, it's at a higher level and you can read some that are at a lower level. Saudi Arabia has put out a number of, um, translations and actually even using the word translation is, Somewhat controversial if you're if you're Muslim because they wouldn't call it a translation, uh, maybe a rendering or something, but they, they wouldn't say they wouldn't use that terminology. But Saudi Arabia's put out some wrong versions. So yeah, good. So that's actually some of the points we're going to bring up. You know, the fact that for the Muslim, normally if you're if you're Muslim, you should be reading the, the Arabic Quran. You shouldn't be reading it in your own language. You shouldn't be reading that. Now that's that stance has softened over time, so that now. You know, Indonesians or Malaysians or Indian, uh, Pakistani, these people can re- now read it in their own languages. And there's not as much a hard line as there used to be. But, uh, ideally, uh, that, that position is still the issue. Uh, and just out of curiosity, did you have to memorize Arabic, like, verses? Or did you memorize? So, yeah. You, well, when you pray, you memorize the, the first line of the yep. Quran. And then you recite a verse. Right. Yeah. So even though you couldn't read it, but you would still memorize it. And even though most, uh, no one, very few people can speak Quranic Arabic because it's a, it's like it's actually more ancient than even like a King James English. Uh, if you were trying to uh, compare it, um, you would still memorize in that in that Arabic. Anybody else? Any exposure? Any? Yeah, Phil. So my mom's side is all Lebanese. Yeah. And uh, they're all Greek Orthodox Roman Catholic, but we have some really good family friends that are. Muslims and doctors that she works with, and so we've been we've been to their house a bunch of times and been to some you know functions at mosques, you know yeah. weddings, funerals, things like that. And then uh, so we've been at their house and just been curious, and they had an English translation, so we've been you know look in there, dig into it a little bit. We'd always end up talking about you know what's the difference between Christianity and right. Islam and stuff like that. So wow, that was, that was pretty interesting conversation. Yeah, it was. It yeah. was you know because you know how uh, I've been talking to Ibrahim about this, but you know how Lebanese people are. You could be like your seventh cousin. And it, you know, 
a good family friend could almost be like really family. Yeah. So it's really once you kind of get in that, it's really candid and it's not a you know it's not it's quite as big of a deal to talk through that stuff in somebody's house. And, yeah. You know, yeah. over some hummus or something. You know, <laughs> you know, talking. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you know, and that's one of the things about I know it is Arab culture in particular. So if you're from the Arab part of the the Middle East, uh, but and uh, whether you're Christian, Muslim, religion is not. Um, is not like uh, one of those issues you can't, you know, here you don't talk about politics, you don't talk about religion, and maybe family in the workplace. These are things, you, you know, depending on where you are, definitely religion and politics you try to veer away from. In Middle Eastern culture, religion can come up, and it's just something you can talk about, usually very, you know, in a friendly fashion. Uh, and so t- dealing with these things is, is really one of those things that um, doesn't have that, uh, the pitfalls that it does maybe here. Uh, talking to a Muslim in this, in our setting, you know, that might be a little bit. Yeah, Jerry. On one hand, how can you say that it's easy to talk about different denominations and faiths, but on the other hand, it's taboo and you can be killed for leaving the faith? Yeah, great question. So how do you correlate? Um, I guess when we say that it's in the context of it's, it's the context determines those situations. Now, if you're talking in a place like Saudi Arabia or Pakistan uh, and, or Afghanistan, and you, you know where it's 99% Muslim, and then you're trying to talk about Christianity as a Christian, that's that's a different situation than, for instance, Lebanon, where it has you know a sizable percentage-wise has the largest percentage of Christians, uh, according to its population, a large percentage. So Lebanese in Palestine, I remember I've been in a mosque and talking to Muslims about Christianity, not like trying to convert, but just like, you know, what are the differences? Also, you know, you, we believe this, you believe that, and like it's just been a cordial exchange. I think it's so the, the context determines uh, the set, uh, how that and the people you're talking to. So, uh, but generally, I mean, you know, it depends, I, and maybe the relationship you built up. You know, so if there's got a little bit of foundation, and this is really one of the issues that you're going to deal with, right? Because as you're you're interacting with a, your Muslim neighbor, your coworker, your friend, your per, the person you work, you go to school with. These are something you want to be thinking about. You know, can I talk to this person about religion? Are they going to take it as in a hostile fashion? Or are they going to be? Is it going to be a cordial relationship? I mean, if you think about your only in your own coworker, I mean, sometimes, um, Jill, you probably you know. In the, you're, the type of work you do, you have to be very careful, I'm sure, about bringing up in religion. And actually, it probably could get somewhat hostile or a, a bit of a conflict depending on what you bring up or your worldview versus the worldview that you work in. Uh, and so, uh, you know, depending on where you work, what you do, even just talking about religion in our own context, uh, you have to be very careful. Uh, it's not going to be... You know, physically hostile, like it will be in, in certain circumstances in the Muslim world. Uh, but it's a good, great question, and hopefully we can flesh out a little bit more. You know how that how the how that works, that contradiction. Uh, any other uh, any other comments, interactions with with the Quran? Uh, so this is um, if you haven't. I mean, it's not like a magic book. You're not gonna. You know, you can read portions of it if you have an opportunity. Uh, but we'll try to understand what uh, Ibrahim was saying about why the issue of the English translation, and when you bring that up, 
So if I were speaking to a Muslim and I start quoting verses in English, uh, there's going to be if they know the Arabic, there may be that's going to might be a conflict there. And why do we stay away from that? Do we just avoid that that discussion? How we deal with that? Uh, in this section, in the section on Muhammad, uh, we just wrapped up. We discussed how Muhammad is held up by Muslims as the ideal to which they aspire. So every Muslim man or woman looks to Muhammad as as the the, the target for what they want to live their life like. So how does the Quran itself fit into that? How does it fit into their religion? How does it fit into the average Muslim's life? How is it understood? How is it handled by the adherents uh, of Islam? So the reverence attached to the Quran is somewhat different than that attached by Christians to the Bible. It's somewhat, um, I think, well, in my opinion, better resembles what Orthodox Jews, how they handle the Torah. Uh, which if you don't have that reference point, I'll try to flesh out what that means. Uh, for the Muslim, they believe the Arabic is communicated to Muhammad and preserved in the Quran as the literal word of God, uh, inspired and inerrant. This is a little bit different than what we believe are the Christian doctrine of inspiration. You know, we don't, it's, it's different. It's, they use the same terminology, but it's a different, uh, connotation there. What they mean then is handling of physical, the Arabic language Quran, is akin to actually handling the words of God and all reverence and respect offered. So, uh, you know, if, uh, I'm sure Ibrahim could talk about, I mean, how you handle a Quran, the place of honor it's supposed to have, what you're not supposed to do. You don't just throw it in your book bag. You know, you don't just stack it in a, a library shelf with all the other books, uh, how it's supposed to be placed, how it's supposed to be handled. You know, because the Arabic language Quran is is literally they look at it as the word of God so that's that that impacts why there's this issue about translating it into a different language um, why it's such a big deal if you have a pastor down in Florida burning Qurans or you know th- why this is fires people up so much uh, more than so than even you know if someone was trying to bur- burn a Bible which you know still most of us would be outraged but uh, you know, most of us probably wouldn't go out and start, uh, you know, acting violently towards other people. Um, some of you might. No, I'm just kidding. Um, and so there's this quote: "The central message of the Quran." We read this last week. Are, uh, are embedded in its structure, in the way that its component parts are put together. So pulling a random verse out of context is as likely as not to produce misinformation. What does that mean? That obviously means that you cherry-picking verses in the same way that we don't want to do that with the Bible, right? We don't, we try, we tell people don't, you know, you take verse, verses out of context and very quickly you can you can warp the, the meaning of the Bible very much so with the Quran. As we approach the topic of the Quran, we want to think about how this topic fits into the larger purpose of the course as we seek to understand Islam better and primarily from a Muslim perspective this will guide our study of the Quran. So since the Quran is a sacred text, there's some hazards to just approaching it simply as we would any other book. Um, I think we would say this is true with the Bible. I mean, I ta- I've taken classes in college where, you know, it's you're studying comparative literature and you're just, you know, you may read the Bible or the Quran. It's just another form of literature. And so there's this kind of scientific disconnection from the, the text. But it, it is a sacred text, and so we need to just remember that. You know, there's difference between how my professor, when I was at Cleveland State, 
would talk about the Bible uh, versus my professor at, in the seminary would talk about the Bible and how they handled it and how they approached it and presuppositions they had going into it. I think some of that is the same way uh, as we approach the Quran, you know, just trying to remember some of these things. Um, and now, of course, I'm not comparing the Bible and the Quran at the same level, right? We're not talking about quality, same level, same quality. But this, they're both books that are looked upon by the faithful of those religions as being sacred. So what that means for us sitting here today is that we will try to approach it in a technical fashion to understand it. We'll break it down, chapters, sections, historical situation, um, and what it means to a Muslim... Uh, the implications of a worldview, uh, for instance, of a worldview built on the Quran, and how this um, particular text guides and shapes the lives, or doesn't shape the lives, of almost 2 billion people, 2 billion Muslims. So for the non-Muslim, those of us sitting here today, uh, the best and easiest way to create a, a framework for understanding the Quran itself, Uh, and here is just, um, this is a picture of a text. So you can see in the Arabic language here, right to left, um, the text here is, uh, the letters uh, themselves are, are consonant. You know, it's, it's a Semitic language, which means on one hand you read it right to left, but it's also built on uh, three consonant uh, base roots with uh, diacritical marks, which are the vowels. So all these little marks above and below are vowels. And they, they guide your pronunciation. But much like the Bible, when we talk about chapter and verse in the Bible, all of this stuff is later. And I'll have another uh, version that you can see later. Uh, but you can see all, all of these things, the numbers, uh, the voweling, uh, the shape, even this script is a later edition. So framing the text, how do we create this framework for the text? The Meccan and the Medinan surahs. And if you remember, when we talked about uh, Muhammad, Meccan, deal, we're dealing with periods of time. So this, the surahs, as we'll talk about, are chapters. So these are chapters that are dealing with Muhammad's life from this period of time. So this is, 610 is when he begins to receive the revelations of the Quran. So he's 40 years old at this point. He's born in 570, 610, he's 40 years old. 632 is his death. And so it gives us a breakdown. Again, artificial divisions, but it helps us, the non-Muslim, to understand. This division actually dates from the 19th century. This was created by a German. Uh, if, you, if you're familiar with the social sciences, the social sciences are all born out of Germany in the 19th, uh, 19th century, and, and the study of Islam is no different. So he come, there's a German guy that comes up with this, um, this scheme uh, to help people understand uh, a little bit better. Um, the vast majority of the surahs are Meccan. So this is the, uh, roughly, they're, they're almost equal time period, but the, more, the majority of the, the Quran is made up of Meccan surahs. So that early time period. Uh, 88, um, 88 or 90. I mean, some, some scholars debate, so almost 90, up to 90 chapters of the Quran are, are Meccan surahs. Uh, we should also understand at this point that although it's it's helpful to break the Quran in this in, in this manner, most Muslims reject the idea that the Quran uh, was revealed in response to a historical event. Does that make so? Does that make sense? It's not. So if you ask 
you know, we're we're connecting the events of the, that we read in the Quran, the the stories, the chapters, with historical events in Muhammad's life. Uh, but the, a Muslim would actually reject the idea that, you know, this event happened and then we had this revelation because of it. You know, the the revelations aren't coming in response to what's going on in Muhammad's life, even though that as a framework we're trying to understand it that way. You know, they the. The, the verses are coming down for the Muslim. The verses are coming down independent from God due to his re- revealing his will to man and has no connection to historical events. Uh, at least, you know, that's that's the Islamic view. So, they, again, we're creating an artificial framework to just help us understand better. So let me read a, a, a little quote for you. The short and rhythmical, powerful Meccan surahs sustain the worship services of a small community of believers under pressure from a hostile pagan environment. Remember, Meccan Sir is the early, early time period when Muhammad is being um, uh, encountering hostility from his tribe, from his family, from the people in his, his, uh, in, in, around the city of Mecca. In contrast, the lengthy and prosaic Medinan Surahs debated scriptural and legal issues with Jews and Christians at a time when Muhammad's followers were striving to survive as a community during a difficult struggle with opposing military forces and political treachery. The differing character, excuse me, the differing characteristics of the Meccan and Medinan surahs will be crucial for understanding the changes in the way the Quran unfolded over time. So remember, and that's why we spent a decent amount of time on understanding the historical framework because, you know, in the early period, he's just persecuted. He's got a small group of followers. He gets chased out of Mecca. He goes up to Medina. Remember, he heads north. And I remember I mentioned that there were a large number of Jews, Jewish tribes in Medina. So now he's in a, a, a cultural milieu where he's he's interacting with monotheistic tribe, monotheistic religions, uh, encountering Christians due to the, the trade routes. Remember, he, he flees to the Assyrian kingdom, his followers... So he's coming in contact with these monotheistic religions and at the same time waging war against Mecca. Because at this point, he's just being persecuted. Once he's in Medina, he then goes on the offensive and starts taking the battle to, to the Meccan tribe, the Quraysh tribe. So that's, you know, the, the kind of under, that's what this, that quote's talking about. So regarding this complicated nature of the text, uh, to imagine that one can pick up a, a complicated text like uh, like this, read a few lines and know what it says says on any given topic is, is unrealistic to say the least. Why? Why do? I, why would I say that? Or why is that the case? Why am I making that argument? If we take this topic of jihad, for instance, so a hot button topic. Uh, for, if you've any, if you've read anything about, you know, from a Christian standpoint, you probably come across certain verses dealing with jihad and you know trying to help push an argument. Uh, we listen to what some pundits who, who claim to have read the verses on the Quran related to the topic of jihad. I'm not talking about someone like Nabil Qureshi, who is a Muslim coming out, who, who knows the whole framework. I'm talking about you know a Christian who's just picked up an English version of the Quran, read some verses, and then trying to now make an argument. Um, how, how and then speak authoritatively? Uh, how can this? How, how is this considered? Or, is this unrealistic? You know, is it uh, is this different than saying, for instance, someone looking at the Old Testament? Uh, I've mentioned this and how Joshua treated the nations of in, uh, the Canaanite nations 
making claims that the God of the Bible at his core is genocidal. So you probably have run across that, heard that argument from unbelievers, non-Christians before. You know, this, the God, you know, God in the Old Testament, uh, pushing Joshua or, you know, the tribes to commit genocide. Uh, we would take issue with that, and we should. Uh, we would need to do some unpacking of the circumstances, some context, from a Christian standpoint, talking about uh, these claims, uh, what's going on with Joshua. Uh, but we would have to admit that there are those who claim to be uh, Christian and have different viewpoints from ours wrongly. Uh, and if uh, this is the case with Christianity, so if, if you can have that same misunderstanding with Christianity, and, and you will have some people who claim to be Christians who say, you know, we don't worship the God of the Old Testament. You know, we're we're just following Jesus, you know, peace and love and that stuff that happened. You know, we don't. Uh, and you'll see this in more liberal churches. Not not so much. You you won't see it at all in the circles, the churches that probably you know, obviously our church or the churches that you guys are familiar with. But if you were to visit liberal churches, uh, you you may come across that kind of view. Uh, you know, the same type of churches that may have uh, opened their doors or clergy to uh, homosexuals and that kind of thing. Um, if this is the case with Christianity, uh, and it, so, of course, we're going to have some problems with the topic of jihad among Muslims. Uh, that the ha- There's a hazard there. I'm just pointing out that there's at least we need to be aware that there's a hazard and uh, trying to debate a topic from a complicated text that we aren't all that familiar with in any kind of definitive sense. So that's the whole point of me bringing all that up. You're dealing with a very complicated text. So if you've ever, um, you know, I, I got my degree in, in Arabic language and culture. We didn't, we didn't even touch the Quran, the Quranic Arabic, until like our final year. Like this is like years, seven years of Arabic, you know, going into this, and then your final year last year of, of an MA program, you're finally starting to interact with it, and it's like, you don't know any Arabic. You're like trying to read this thing, and it's just like, I, I'm barely, I can't, every other word you're looking up, because it's so, it's old, the language is classic, no one speaks it, dictionaries don't even give you the right definition, so if I pick up, you know, Lisa, I have this, you know, 11 volume dictionary I carried back from Jordan, I'm like, you know, 11 volume Arabic dictionary. And he filled up my suitcase with this thing, lugged it back. You know, if I just, only that thing can I pick up and find a lot of the Quranic Arabic. Like my, my smaller dictionaries, I can't find the right definitions for the Quran. So you're talking about a technical, complicated text that we are now saying that I can, I can be, speak authoritatively about as a, as a non-Muslim. At least we should have a little bit of uh, wariness in, in, in taking that type of position. I mean, if you're James White, then go for it. If you know who James White is, then you know he can do it. But very few of us can do it. So a questionable assumption is the idea that if one understands the Quran, one understands, and this is the quote on the paper, one understands the entire Islamic faith, and therefore one understands all Muslims. This this breathtakingly simple concept is is no doubt convenient. So uh, this idea that if we just understand what the Quran says, we can understand the Islamic faith. Right? We, it's because we, we do want to understand. So we think, well, let's just try to understand what the Quran says. And of course, if we understand this, this text that's central to the Muslim faith, then at least we'll understand Muslims, right? Wrong. 
Well, you'll see. It's wrong. <laughs> Why is it wrong? Um, it's wrong because it means that in order to understand, uh, because realistically, in order to understand Muslims, uh, taking that view means that you're not really taking seriously hundred years, of, hundreds of years of history, politics, social economic conditions, the culture of, of different religion of regions. So we're talking about going all the way from Malaysia and Indonesia all the way across to how a Muslim in Canada expresses their their religion. It would be easy if from a few lines in a sacred text one could predict everything about the behavior of hundreds of millions of people in widely separated countries as if they were programmed from a central computer. And, you know, so sometimes you'll have this question or this idea that, like, can we... If uh, and it's a good question. I've heard it. You know, I've read. You know, read questions this way. I've been asked throughout the years. If I were just a, if a Muslim is just a true, you know, follows the Quran and is a good Muslim from you know according to the religion. Uh, I mean, sorry. If they just read the Quran and they follow what the Quran says, does that mean they're going to be, you know, violent, or does that mean they're going to be X? You know, can we predict their behavior just by saying like if they follow? The, the Quran, 100%. And the answer is, who knows? I mean, you can't... The, the, the Quran, even though it's it's a central aspect, and it's one of the, the central beliefs, uh, important beliefs of the, the Islamic faith, it still doesn't give uh, us the key to unlocking how the minds of almost 2 billion people think, uh, as much as we wish it would. Uh, any questions on that, or feedback, or pushback? Um, do um, do Muslims even understand because it's such an ancient text? Do they even understand it when they're reading it? Yeah. So great question. So the question is, and I'm going to try to do this because I I, I keep forgetting. I'll try to repeat the question so everyone can hear. Do, can Muslims even understand this text if it's so technical and it's using ancient language? How do they? Can they? Do they understand? Can they understand? And in some cases, I mean, I, I think. You'll run across, I've run across here in this country, Muslims who've uh, never really read the Quran. You know, and so you can be Muslim and never really read the Quran uh, because then it becomes a culture thing. You know, how do you, you express it? Or I've run, you know, you'll see in that, I, don't, I think they showed it in that, in that documentary, but uh, you've heard this concept of madrasas, maybe. Uh, it was really important because in, uh, these are the places that the, the Taliban, in 2001, this is where the places that the Taliban was recruiting from, uh, madrasas. These are schools, Islamic schools, where all the kids do from an early age is memorize the Quran all day long, reciting the Quran, memorizing and reciting the Quran all day long. They don't learn anything. They don't even learn how to apply it to their life. They just learn to recite it all day long. And so you can learn to recite this this. And, and still have no idea what you're talking about. I mean, especially in places that don't speak Arabic. So in places like Pakistan, Afghanistan, you know, where they speak, you know, Urdu or different languages that have nothing to do with Arabic, aren't even in the same family. They've recited, they can recite it even perfectly sometimes, tone, tone perfect, perfect pronunciation, and have no idea what they're reciting. So they, they can't, they can't see how it applies to their life, they can't see, uh, so the answer is, in some cases, yeah. I mean, there are some countries with a high level. The Gulf countries, for instance, have a high high level of inter- uh, understanding. 
Um, actually, one of the, the the highest levels actually is is a country like is is Sudan. <coughs> Sudan has a really high level of literacy in Quranic understanding. Uh, believe it or not, um, they they actually their Arabic is really close. I mean, if you um, Yemen as well in some certain parts of Yemen. I mean, if, uh, it's some places it's really uneducated, but in certain cities it's really high. But I mean. So it, it just depends. So some places, yes. But for the vast majority, they're not reading the Quran. They're, they may memorize some verses, but they're not reading it. Um, piggybacking off of that, um, I know like Catholicism, they look to the Bible, they look to the Pope, and they look to tradition for yeah. their authority. Does Islam only look to the Quran, or do they have a similar structure? Uh, yeah, so great question. So that's, this ties back to, so they do, do, in comparison, comparing Islam and, and say Catholicism, where Catholicism has this structure where they follow, uh, is it, is there something similar in, in Islam? So the answer is yes. If you remember we talked about, so Muhammad is, is that figure. So they're following, uh, the life that Muhammad lived. This is why hadiths, uh, the hadith, uh, Understanding is important because a lot of this stuff is fleshed out in this, these writings that record uh, the Sunnah or the example of the Prophet. So you have this whole body of literature that parallels the Quran uh, in its importance. That all it talks about is um, the Prophet said in this conversation, the Prophet said this about this topic, and so that becomes actually just as important or more important than what they're reading in the Quran. So following, it's, there's an example set forth. Um, and in Sunni Islam, um, there's actually, they follow the teachings, these, these edicts that will come down. That's why someone like Osama bin Laden or these, these teachers can just say things from a pulpit, uh, the Ayatollah in, in Shia Islam, and they, they hold the same amount of weight. It's like that papal kind of decree. Uh, so the answer is yes. Um, and why, uh, and even the Quran itself allows um, a little bit for that. You know, there's this kind of parallel structure. Um, good question. So uh, hopefully we'll flesh out that a little bit more, but we'll actually deal with that more when we get into the next topic as well. Yeah. Uh, you, earlier on, you were saying that uh, Muslims have a real problem with maybe Christians or whoever uh, quoting uh, English translation of the Quran I mean I need to make a comparison but do the do the the Muslims kind of uh, have kind of like a King James only type of type of a mindset toward the Arabic Uh, yeah yeah it's actually stronger it's a great way of understanding I mean it's a great way of putting it because they really do but it's actually even stronger than like a King James. Um, so they, so if you quote English translation, it's like they would just laugh at you. I don't think they would laugh at you, but they're not gonna. Or they would discount you. They would discount, you know, and they're because you, they would be able. They would say that, well, that's not really, and that's why I said they don't really even call the English versions a translation, because it's not. They don't really believe you can translate it. You know, because this is the form that God, 
This is God's because word. Not only the Arab, I mean, not only the Quran, but the, the the Arab language is sacred itself. Well, it's the the language. Or the Quran in the Arab language is sacred. It's sacred because it's that was was spoken to Muhammad. Okay. Yeah. So it's it's not that the Arabic is inherently sacred. It's that it, that was the language that God revealed it to Muhammad in, and so that makes it these words. These very words, in the same way that King James only people are kind of like these very words in the English language, and on the extreme level, we'll say even go or even trump the original language. They're actually stronger than the Greek and the Hebrew, the English, the King James English is. Right. Uh, and in that same way, uh, they would. Okay. Yeah. And so they, that's why, you know, it's, I'm, I mean, that's part of the reason why I'm always hesitant to like want to do, be drawn into that because unless you can, if you know, the, if you can quote the verse in Arabic, go at it, man. But if you can't quote the verse in Arabic, just avoid that that line. I mean, there's other more fruitful avenues, in my opinion. I mean, I, there's people who are going to disagree with me, and uh, good people, really educated people. But I think, in my opinion, because of the the way that Arabs view the language and Muslims view the the importance of the Arabic Quran, uh, it's just an avenue to avoid. And we'll try to understand why a little bit more. So, good question, though. Uh, anything else as we... Yeah. Is it better when you deal with a Muslim person just not to try to engage them with their faith, to try to just accurately represent or present what they Yeah, well... Maybe just conquer whatever they, they throw at us, and, and because otherwise it doesn't sound like it would be very fruitful anyway. Yeah, and so these are... right. So what we're now getting at is apologetic method, right? So what is the best way of actually engaging... You know, because I, I think the 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 importance of what's being said is that, you know not not uh, engaging on the Quran, not engaging a Muslim on the Quran. Why is that? Uh, why is that uh, the wrong way to do it? Is because then you're actually saying your Quran is actually on the same level as the Bible, and we can debate as equal texts. The reality is they're not right. The Bible and Christianity is true, and everything else is false. You know, if if your if your world biblical worldview is set up, you know, in the right way, then you, there is no stand. We're not arguing on equal terms. There's there's Christian view, the Christian worldview, and what God has revealed in His Word, and everything else is false. So you don't argue uh, on the same point. Yeah, right. Um, while we're on this topic, I actually had a question. Yeah. So in Arabic, obviously, the God is meant to be like readily understood, but I know, I know there's a passage, I can't tell you what Suda it is, but um, it says that the, that the Quran is very clear and that this is God's word coming down. So one question and like one like trouble that I had when understanding that is how could it be clear when it can't be translated into a different language? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like Absolutely. The core, the core message of it would be like slandered kind of, kind of right. in a different language. It, it doesn't make sense. Right. I don't know how to approach someone with that. Yeah. Um, save that question. Do you have a follow up? Because I want to. We'll try to see if, if in the tag in the the lecture some of that will come out. I want to do address that though. So if not, because um, I think that's an important point, and it connects back to this apologetic. How do we how do we um, engage Muslims and show out inconsistencies? Because a lot of uh, and this is even the case with J Jesus. I mean, we just 
you know, we were just in, in Phoenix for two weeks, and a lot of the stuff that they talked about was, you know, you can actually go to the Quran itself. And I actually was with, uh, when I was in the West Bank, I lived with a pastor, a Palestinian pastor, who, who, I mean, he knew the Quran like a Muslim. I mean, he actually probably knew it better than most Muslims. And he could actually engage in a debate with the Quran and show that what the Quran says about Jesus, it actually cor- uh, correlates with what the Bible reveals about Jesus. And so, you know, he, he could he could lean on him in that direction. But you have to pretty have a pretty deep knowledge, and that's part of the answer, is you, you really need a pretty deep understanding. Because, you know, you may say that verse and, and be able to quote it and, and point it out and then say, look, this is what it says. There's going to be a counter to that. So what you, can you follow up to that? And if you can't, then it's like it, you're kind of dead in the water at that point. You know what I mean? At least that's my opinion. I mean, I think I, there are people... but you. There is a place for that because you need to uh, show the fool his folly, according to Proverbs, right? You show the fool that his way is is foolish. So there is a place for that. Uh, you need, do need to show that there is this inconsistency in your worldview. Uh, you know, and, and you know, as Bonson said, you know, you go into the guy's house and you you bust up his house. You know, you go to that show the person that their worldview makes no sense, is inconsistent, incoherent. You know, you, so you're literally breaking down his house, his his worldview. Uh, so there is a place for that, but how you go about it or how deep you can go, uh, you know, it, it's, it's limited, I think, for most of us. Huh? I don't know where you're going to go, but are you going to deal with authorship? I mean, on a timeline, when the Quran is revealed and who's doing the writing? Uh, I, yeah, so some of that. Yeah, some of that, yeah. Depending of it. Yeah. Yeah, we'll get into it. Uh, we won't be able to get really in depth because it's like it's a science in and of itself. Uh, it's not, which is the, the transmission, uh, the Arabic word. It's not. It's the transmission of the Quran. So it's we'll try to, but I'll give you guys at least an understanding of how how it happens because it's, but it's not Muhammad. It's not Muhammad because remember Muhammad's Muhammad's illiterate on one hand, so he can't be writing this down, and that's actually important. Remember we talked about this, this is an important point for the Muslim to to remember Muhammad's didn't just make this stuff up and didn't just write it because he was illiterate. This is an important point for a Muslim to that they say. It's not. It's actually a, a, a point of pride. You know, Muhammad was an illiterate man. He didn't just make these things up and write them down. Uh, so yeah, it was not Muhammad. And all of it is compiled after his death. And actually, the oral, uh, the oral Quran fixes the written Quran. You know, which is what kind of backwards to what we would think. You know, so there's... The written version is written down, but then you have people who memorized it because very, even during the time of the Prophet, uh, even Muhammad's lifetime, you had this science of memorizing large passages of the Quran, which you still have today. Remember, we t- I just mentioned the, these madrasas. So the, the, the oral Quran is used to fix the written Quran early on. So, uh, but we'll, we'll try to flesh that out. Actually, coming up, the compilation. Uh, so, compilation of the Quran. So, this is, uh, I think this is a 10th century or 8th century. I don't remember if it was 8th or 10th. Uh, it's early, it's the, one of the earliest, uh, manuscripts of the Quran that they've, they've found. And you can see the difference in the text. No voweling, and it just, it just floats. There's no verse. There's no chapters. There's no verses. There's no headings, uh, and very 
you know, even for someone who reads Arabic, you're going to have a hard time reading this. This is so. This is, um, you know, an early, early text. Uh, the Quran is revealed over the last 23 years of Muhammad's life, as we talked about. Muhammad himself never wrote down any of the revelations. He never wrote down anything he ever got. Uh, they were recorded by scribes. Uh, they were recited uh, as they were recited and revealed. So as Muhammad, from the very beginning, the sources tell us that as Muhammad is getting these revelations, he's immediately going to the community, re- telling them, reciting, which is what Quran means, re- recite, recite, reciting, uh, recite. So he's going, he recites these verses uh, immediately, and then there's people who will begin writing it down. Literate people who are, are writing this stuff down right from the beginning. Um, this means that portions are recorded on anything from parchment to bone to wood. Um, the actual compilation, the Quran itself, didn't begin until after Muhammad's death, as, we, as I just mentioned. mentioned. Uh, Abu Bakr, which I think has, I've mentioned who, his name in the notes on the movie, the, who is the first caliph. So the people who, the first uh, leader, the, the people who lead the community after Muhammad's death, death are known as caliphs. So Abu Bakr is the first caliph. He begins the process of actually compiling the different portions of recorded text into one volume, uh, which is recorded uh, sometime in the 640s. So if you remember when he died, he dies in 632. So sometime around... Roughly 10 years after his death, Abu Bakr, then this caliph, begins compiling this stuff and putting it into one volume. Uh, Uthman, who is after Abu Bakr, uh, is responsible for codifying, putting the text in the order, uh, eliminating the other versions. Uh, He sends out an official copy. He's the one, you know, they basically bring all the the, the versions together. They bring all the, the, the... the, the scraps, you know, the parchments together, get an official version. He's the one who sends, Uthman sends it out to the whole, uh, out to the, the whole, uh, throughout the Islamic lands, uh, specifically to large urban areas. Uh, question? Uh, so the earliest manuscripts of the Quran that the historians have reliably dated are from the 9th century. And I shouldn't add that this doesn't mean this doesn't mean that there are no no texts prior to that. It's just that we don't have a reliable physical copy. The actual textual analysis done suggests that uh, the Quran, as we have it today, was likely codified by the end of the 7th century. So. Uh, Textual, the textual science of actually looking at the text and, and, and dating it and, and uh, pouring over, much like we do, we use in the same way to, the, the, to date the Bible uh, textual variants, uh, show that the, the Quran, the Quran, the Arabic Quran, is likely was codified around the seventh century. Um, there, are, there are manuscripts that some there are some that people have that claim certain countries. 
Um, there's one in Pakistan, I think, that they say claims the date from the 7th century, but they've been shown to be forgeries. And we don't have any whole complete copies of the Quran from that early on. Um, copies of the Quran, uh, the copies in Arabic are known as Mushaf. So it's not Mushaf, it's, it's like a, a pause there. Mushaf. Uh, and these are what you, how, and, you know, what they would call, uh, uh, you know, uh, so the Quran that you actually pick up, the Arabic Quran that you pick up is, is actually called a Mushaf. By Muslims, um, uh, the the Quran refers to the actual revelations made to Muhammad. So if you get technical, I mean, the average Muslim may not call it that, but if you get technical, it's, that's that's how it would break down. Uh, the written copies are just referred to as the Quran, obviously, mainly related to English language influence. So if you open up an Arabic Quran today, the form of the text you would see that earlier slide I showed. Uh, you'd see some foreign, uh, something that would be foreign to, to someone in the 7th century reading it, even if they were literate. Uh, and this is because, like other Semitic languages, languages, the text would have been written with just consonants, which is what we see here. No voweling, just consonants. Long vowels. Uh, and with the assumption that the reader could, could fill in the missing vowel sounds uh, themselves. And that's how, if you even today, so if you go in Arabic... Uh, to an Arabic-speaking country, and I, you pick up a newspaper, uh, it, the text is just just uh, consonants. There's no vowels because the uh, the idea is that you the only uh, you know which is frustrating when you learn uh, actually Hebrew is the same way when you learn these languages uh, for someone who the only thing that has vowels in it that has the vowels marked are kids' books. So you, you know you you can read a kids' book, but you can't actually go and pick up a newspaper initially because there's no vowel. You just have to know context determines the vowel. Why do they do that? It's just convention. Like I said, Hebrew does the same exact thing, uh, and so it's just um, the way Semitic languages short vowels are just something that didn't exist when the language was codified in both in, in Hebrew or in Arabic. They just didn't have markings. You know the Masoretes were the ones who added this, the, the voweling system to the Hebrew uh, Bible. You know, so when the languages are being codified and, and fit, you know, written, they just don't have marks for that. Uh, and they, they just didn't think it was an important thing to do. So, Is that why when I read my Bible and, it, and it's, you know, pronounced, you know, the pronunciation guides, that all these vowels are long? Uh, because that's what it was originally only long. No, 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 no. So that's that's a yeah. No, that's not why. Uh, well, so okay, that's, yeah, because I just issue. an inordinate number of vowels are long, and this is the first time I've I've yeah. even noticed that that they were most of them. Were that's actually yeah, that's connected to the Semitic language itself has long vowels. They have long and short vowels, and so unlike English uh, or you know Romance languages, they, you know they, it actually has. You know, a long and a short vowel, uh, and so it's it just for us. You know, we it's kind of foreign to actually drag this vowel sound out. You know, uh, which in, in Semitic languages you have to because if you cut it short, you actually change the meaning of the words. And so it, that's that deals with it a little bit. But oh, okay. Yeah. So that, okay. I yeah, just so thought maybe that that 
that was it. It just I didn't want it's to. that actually. I mean, it just has more to do with the foreignness of the sounds than anything else. Okay. Yeah, and why uh, a picture of this without getting too off track is why like Yahweh uh, and you know why the word Yahweh is and you know um, Jehovah and you know, if you ever read why Jehovah and Yahweh why the pronunciation and why we read Jehovah but it actually is Yahweh but even Yahweh is not probably because we don't really know the pronunciation because we don't know the voweling and so I don't want to explain it because it's you know it's kind of esoteric for our settings but if you know that that's there's that's why there's a difference uh, it's just that they write they write without vowels um, Three centuries. It takes three centuries after Muhammad dies, after the codifying of the text, before you begin having voweling and diacritical marks in a, in a Quran. So, 10th century. This is 10th century, which corresponds with the high point, the peak, the golden age of Islam is, is the 10th century. 10th, 11th century, corresponding with the Abbasid uh, Empire. And so that's, that, that's when all the voweling begins to appear. So related to this untranslatability of the Quran, that is, the Quran is never to be translated into another language. It can be rendered, paraphrased, and sometimes you'll hear that. That'll be what you'll hear. Uh, English version is actually just a paraphrasing uh, into another language for the sake of explanation, but it must be read in Arabic for it to be truly understood. So the reasons for this, uh, the, re- the ritual nature of the verses needing to be recited at prayer in Arabic. And this is what uh, Ibrahim mentioned. So when you pray, certain verses have to be recited and they have to be recited in Arabic. So there's a ritual sense of the that it's connected with the Arabic language. It's not just, you know, with... with um, Judaism similar. If you, you know, they recite certain... So if you ever see, for instance, you ever see a picture of Jews at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem and they're like praying to the wall... Usually they're reciting psalms, uh, psalms of uh, you know lament and these things, and they're reciting them in Hebrew. Uh, and so there's the same kind of connection there. You know, Christianity we don't have that. We don't we don't need to recite the Greek versions of a uh, of, of something. Damn. The old Roman mass was only done in exactly, and that's exactly. You would not say an English word during the entire mass. Yep. And that's that's exactly the parallel. So there's a. The, the Latin was actually part of the the service, and it's it's similar. There's a um, the ritual nature of using that particular language connected to how the expression of the religion in that particular form. So that's exactly that's a great uh, analogy there. Secondly, so the ritual nature of the verses. Part of the secondly is the the part of the argument in the Quran itself regarding its miraculous nature rests on its Arabic prose. If you remember when we talked, uh, we talked a little bit about that. The actual part of the miracle attested to the Quran, because the Quran is a miracle, if you, if you, in the Islamic worldview, the revealing of the Quran, the book itself, is miraculous. And part of that miraculous nature is that the text is so beautiful. It's, it's such a, a work of art that no man could actually put it together. So no human being could actually put together the Quran in its beauty, in its form, in its majesty, and that's that, to the Muslim that, that actually is part. So there's those two aspects working on why there's resistance to the Arabic uh, being translated. Folk Islam related to the text, the next point. So 
Uh, it's hard to overstate the importance of the Quranic text to the average Muslim. Although a person may be illiterate or not read the Quran on a regular basis, the belief that the Quran is God's speech manifest, that is God's speech made physical in a similar fashion as we believe God's God manifested himself in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. So there's a parallel there that in some ways in the Islamic worldview, the Quran itself is in, in some way like like the person of Jesus Christ. It's actually God, God's word made flesh, made physical, uh, you know. Reciting the Quran is equated with participating in God's speech. So when you recite it, when you recite it in Arabic, you participate in, in God's words. Quranic reciters are known as Hafiz. Um, and are afforded a high level of respect across the Islamic world. So if you can memorize the Quran or large portions of it, you you like are already at this point in the culture. I mean, you're like, people are like, man, this guy. Like, you, you in some cultures, in some countries, like, that in and of itself, your ability to recite the Quran perfectly, well, actually, that, like, you can make a living off that. Like, you don't have to do anything else. Like, just the fact that you know the Quran and can recite it, like, you are just going to be taken care of uh, by the state. Uh, well, this is in part due to their ability and skill. And so it is a technical book. Remember, this is a book that you can't, the average person can't even read. So there is some skill to it, right? I mean, we know, like, if you ever try to, I mean, I can't, I've tried to memorize like a book of the Bible and it's just my brain just can't do it. So you know, if any of you have ever done it or seen someone recite from memory books of the uh, Bible, it's an amazing thing. So, you know, to recite a whole book, the whole Quran from memory is a, a skill. Um, it's mainly due to the, the, the their exaltation in the culture is actually due um uh, um Due to the, sorry, uh, mainly due to the, how, the, the place that the Quran has in the Islamic culture. So even for those who do not read or cannot read, so even if you can't read the Quran or you don't read the Quran, you still recognize that like this person, this Quran is such a great thing, that and this person connected with it now like should be uh, at that high level. Further example of this, talking now speaking about folk Islam, that is Islam in practice. We're not talking about Islam in theory. This is Islam as fleshed out in the everyday world. A further example of this this veneration of the Quran is that you'll see amulets, calligraphy, artwork. You know, if you go to a mosque, if you ever visited the mosque on Ford Road, you ever visit any mosque, you're going to see calligraphy going all around. I mean, part of this is there's a ban. You can't you can't depict. Um, uh, you know, living beings, things with a soul. So you don't see like pictures of people or pictures of, but that's like a later thing. Early on, it was this veneration of the word itself. So you see just Quranic verses written in artwork. I mean, it, it's actually a, a huge skill. I mean, you like, you can make, make a living. If you're good at calligraphy, you can make a living off just doing calligraphy, uh, of, of Quranic verses. You know, people wear pendants. Uh, you know, uh, that have, um, in certain countries, especially in, in sub-Saharan Africa, Muslim countries, they'll wear little leather pat amulets that they, they'll write a chronic verse on and they'll wear it like, you know, like a safeguard, like it's a, a thing that's gonna protect them or bring them good luck or something. It's, it's that idea 
uh, showing that there's some kind of almost magical quality. And I say magical, not a Muslim wouldn't say that, but you know, as a non-Muslim, a magical quality to the words themselves. Um, they'll actually, in some places, uh, you know, in, in certain, especially in tribal regions, we're talking places like Afghanistan, uh, Central Asia, they'll actually write out, you'll have a kid who's sick, and they'll write out the ver- a verse in the, uh, the Quran, so I should go right to left. So they'll write it out, and then they'll take that ink, and they'll mix it with water, and they'll give the person that ink that to drink to make them feel like as a thing to make them healthy because they're sick. You know, their child may have this chronic disease, and this thing is this this power that is in in the word itself will actually they believe will actually have some ability to heal them. Um, this reality of magic, this this idea, and this actually is connected with another idea that there's magic. You know, not like pulling rabbits out of a hat sense of magic, but uh, there's a the unknown aspect of magic, the ability that there's something that is going on in the immaterial, the spiritual realm that you can manipulate and cause to happen is actually an important part of the Islamic worldview. You know, it, it actually makes a big part. So if you ever seen, if you ever drive through like Arab, an Arab neighborhood, you ever travel in the Middle East, you ever seen pictures, they'll have like, Arabic words written all over uh, all over the car and some of that is to ward off this evil eye because they believe that someone can can cast an evil eye why uh, and this is like the practical aspect of it why if I were to um, if I go to Travis and I say hey man I really you know your that car you have is really nice and I just leave it at that and you're like oh man that guy is like now you you're gonna actually be afraid like he actually, you're going to get upset, like because now there's a chance you've what cast this like evil eye magic thing at him, so that you're going to lose that, or you'll, it'll cause you to like um, something to happen to your physical, you know. So they'll they'll write like sometimes you'll see what looks like a hand with like an eye on it, or like a, the actual an actual eye on like the car, or this phrase Masha'Allah, or these this thing because you know you have to ward off jealousy. And so usually, like, if I were to compliment somebody, I'd, I'd have to preempt it with this phrase, Masha'Allah, your, your kid is doing so well. You know, like, because you're not trying to, they don't want you to, like, they believe that there's a magical element to life that, you know, you can interact with. And this, there's part of that actually is fleshed in the Quran. So, um, yeah, so. That's like when um, people say, just um, as a matter of fact, knock on wood, Knocking down wood is really knocking evil spirits out. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, we even have the tossing of the salt, or you spill the salt, you know that kind of stuff. Um, but it's really strong. It is, I mean, that's why, like I said, if you if you drive through Dearborn, or if you go to restaurants, people will have that that phrase written in Arabic, or like you know the little amulets with like the eye, you know, hanging on things because this they, there's a real element to this belief that there's you know magic. You have to. Um, Let's follow up and then I'll... Just how do you say it again? I'm going to try to listen for it tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> let me write it out. <laughs> it's Masha'Allah. I think I've, I've heard that from the interpreter saying that to the patients. I'm sure. I mean, I wouldn't go... You don't want to go around saying that because it's an Islamic <laughs> phrase, right? So, but, I mean, that's... You'll hear that phrase. Um, some, you know, I've heard... it's. 
you basically it's a preemptive phrase. Like if you're gonna if you're gonna compliment, if you're gonna say something nice about someone's stuff, you know that kind of thing. We uh, had to, <clears throat> at work today had to interact with a lot of uh, Muslims and their uh, spaces. Why are they so? Save that for another. Save that for a, a, once we get off the Quran. So let's let's. I, I was serious, yeah. dude. I was just like, "Are you kidding me?" Like, yeah, because well, let's let's hit that when we talk about popular culture or something. But um, let, I think there was one other question. Yeah. So is this true of um, Muslims across the board that they they believe in this? This isn't just uh, like. It doesn't matter the socioeconomic across level. the board. It, the the expression of it changes. So how strong, like the amulet thing, you're going to see in tribal regions. You know, wearing, yeah. writing the chronic verses and wrapping them up and and wearing them as amulets. Uh, I think I have a picture before. I... Yeah. So these these leather leather bound things that you see. Uh, these are the this is the Tuareg um, tribesmen. Uh, they, they basically Mali, parts of Senegal, Chad, going up into Algeria. They have these these tribes, and you'll see they wear these leather little leather pat, uh, packets that have Quranic verses wrapped in them, and that's all, basically protection. So it, the expression of it varies uh, to like you know lots of expression, overt expression in, in tribal regions to like Saudi Arabia. In, in big cities where they may only say certain phrases, but they do believe in it. You know, it used to be a big thing was that, like, you'd see in, like, um, more tribal areas, they wouldn't actually wash the kids' eyes. So there was a lot of blindness in, in like, places like Afghanistan because they wouldn't wash... They, they believed that washing... That protected them from the evil eye, this concept of the evil eye. So they wouldn't wash the kids' faces. And so the kids were going blind... Because you know you, you, you never wash their face. Right? That's the evil eye. <laughs> yeah. So it was like. So the expression of it varies, but it is present in all Muslim yeah. cultures. I think it's pretty common too, because my 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 Sithi, my grandmother was Catholic Orthodox, and we used to say that all the time. Or yeah. like when you say goodbye, she would say Alamayak, which means you know God be with you. Yep. And we, you know. Allah to her, she wasn't thinking like Islamic. But there's those phrases like that. Yep. They're almost like good luck or yeah. you know, be safe. Yep. We say that in Arabic all the time. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, this is just inherent, you know, in all. I mean, you, that's why, like, uh, when we'll, we're, we'll stop here. But the, you know, it's almost funny because, like, there's so many of these kind of phrases that you say sometimes, like, you greet somebody and, like, the greeting goes on for, like, five minutes because you're, like, back and forth, like, hey, how's it going? Good, good. You keep asking, keep asking. Yeah. And you're like, all right, dude, just let's, let's, let's go ahead and start this conversation. Anyhow, uh, any other, well, no more questions. We're over. So I'm going to just pray and then we'll, we'll, we'll call it a day. Lord God, we just thank you for today. We thank you for uh, being able to gather together today to learn a little bit more about this topic. We pray for your blessing and grace on us. Each one here, help us to go out to maybe use this knowledge as we interact with our neighbors and friends and family. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.